This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Democracies around the world are united in our condemnation of Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine. The assault began late Wednesday night, what has become an all-out, full-scale and deadly war. Russia's leader and his foreign minister are calling for Ukraine to drop ambitions of joining NATO. But it is also widely believed that Vladimir Putin will not be happy until he can bring Ukraine into a reinvented Soviet Union. Meantime, financial sanctions have been announced against Russia, which experts say the Putin regime can resist for some time. The day after the war began, Libby was joined by an esteemed panel of experts, Dr. Andriy Zayarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, Janice Stein, founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and Peter Sturin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto branch. It's been challenging for my wife's family that's actually in the eastern part of Ukraine, which is was already just 100 kilometers from from the conflict zone. Uh, She hasn't been able to get through. Unfortunately, we believe the phone lines are already down uh, and power is being cut in a lot of areas. So it's uh, very disheartening. Mm -hmm. And have you uh, reached people in other parts of the country? Uh, yes, uh, I have, and uh, it's uh, it's pretty much everything you're seeing in the in the news. Uh, people are scared, uh, people are angry, uh, people are reacting in different ways. Men are joining the reserves. Uh, other families are trying to find places uh, for safety. Uh, some people have uh, ended up being in in, in bomb shelters and cave. It's a, a lot of uh, people are hiding out in the subways. Um, it's um, it's horrific. It's beyond words. Janice Stein, it's been called uh, the worst aggression since the Second World War. How do you see it? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. It is clearly an act of unprovoked aggression. Um, I watched Putin's speech, as I'm sure we all did, and you saw a very angry, uh, revisionist, um, and aggressive leader with a group of really terrified advisors around him who are clearly unable to offer any kind of dissenting opinion. I would just say, and this is just it's, it's tragic uh, for Ukrainians, I think uh, Russia will pay dearly for this over time. Um, it will retard Russia's development. It will cut it off in many important ways from the West for a decade. Um, I think this will prove to be a major miscalculation by Vladimir Putin. Dr. Zayarnyuk, you teach about the Soviet Union. Uh, A lot of the commentary is that this is what Putin is trying to do to recreate the Soviet Union. He's been called a megalomaniac. Uh, What's your take on that? 
I would be careful with historical parallels. The Soviet Union, after World War II, didn't annex a single piece of territory. So what Putin did in 2014 and now again is actually unprecedented, even from the point of view of Soviet leadership and Soviet, Soviet history. I mean, the last time Ukrainian cities uh, saw an attack like this one was at the beginning of World War II. On the 1st of September 1939, when Germans bombed Lviv, and then in June 1941, when they, they bombed Kiev, Kharkiv, Odessa, and other Ukrainian cities. Is this just the beginning? That's one of the warnings that uh, it's not going to end with Ukraine. I mean, it's not the beginning. It's a war. It's an all-out war. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. It's a catastrophe for the international law. And it also tells something about the West and the whole architecture of security the West is pretending to uphold. The West did too little, too late to help Ukraine. And even now, after those airstrikes, with the combat taking place all over Ukraine, there is no real help coming from the West. Janice Stein. Libby, I'm thinking about public reaction at home. It's easy to make statements of support, but the economic sanctions that we've all been talking about are taking place in an inflationary environment. Canadian consumers are going to see increases in prices as a result, and what I'm hopeful, but we have a lot of work to do to explain why it matters, I'm hopeful that the public will continue to support these economic sanctions once they understand they're not only going to bite Russia, they're going to bite in the West as well. Jana Stein, founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Dr. Andri Zayarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg. And Peter Sturin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto branch. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. In a surprise move on Wednesday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau revoked the Emergencies Act just two days after it passed in Parliament. He'd been facing widespread accusations of overreach and the threat of court challenges. Ontario's Premier Doug Ford followed suit, calling off the state of emergency in Ontario. A week after the Emergencies Act was used to take down the more than three-week occupation of downtown Ottawa by anti-mandate protesters, Fight Back brought in two strategists to talk about the fallout from invoking and then revoking the Emergencies Act. Muhammad Ali is a liberal strategist and senior consultant at Crestview Strategy in Ottawa, and Jason Leader is a conservative strategist and president at Enterprise. You know, as you know, I'm not a big fan of Mr. Trudeau, but I, 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 from an analysis perspective, I thought it was a brilliant move to pull it off. You know, he sort of, everybody is talking about how, you know, he's, uh, he wants it on forever and, you know, all these kinds of things. And uh, he pulled it off and changed the game in terms of the debate. So I really thought it was a smart political move. I thought uh, there was a lot of overreach uh, in, in some of the, some of the, I think he, he was. They were stinging from some of the criticism that was going to start to get louder in terms of the banks and people freezing accounts and you know people who 
really had not much to do with the protest other than giving twenty five, fifty, a hundred dollars or whatever there was going to be. And there will be a bunch of people traipsed in front of parliamentary committees to tell that story. And I think he was getting ahead of that. So I, I thought it was a pretty smart political move to uh, get ahead of it and, and, and change the game a little bit. And Mohammed, what do you think? Uh, I agree. You know, I, uh, I was a little surprised that it, he pulled uh, he pulled it back uh, earlier. I thought he probably would take it to the weekend just to uh, ensure that all things were taken care of. You know, there, there, there is threats ongoing about going back to the Ambassador's Bridge. Uh, Syria has seen some. There's a Coots uh, threat there as well. So, I thought he'd probably wait a little bit longer. And there's the, you know, the encampments around Ottawa right now where some of the convoys, uh, protesters had, had, um, retreated to. Uh, so I was a little surprised, but, you know, I think he's been consistent with it, at least saying that he's taking it day by day, talking to law enforcement, uh, what they need is what they're providing. And, and they've all acknowledged. And even the premier of Ontario has said, look, this, this was the game changer we needed to ensure that the blockade ended address where the finances are coming from to support the ongoing occupation. Um, and it's mission accomplished. And now things have stabilized and allowed the Prime Minister to pull back on the Emergency Act, which, you know, I think he rightfully did, and it was a smart move. The broad strokes are that, uh, you know, the RCMP was able to send lists to financial institutions of, of people's financial um, records to uh, seize or to, uh, to, to freeze. And, and, and mistakes will have been made. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that this was not necessary or that, you know, but it's a pretty draconian step. Um, there wasn't much in the way of recourse if, you know, if mistakes did happen. And, um, this is why I think the government was so quick, um, over the last couple of days to come out with some communications from a political perspective. I think when they felt that they were at risk, they, they acted pretty quickly to get back into alignment. Mohammed. What would you like to leave us with? Well, look, I think um, the situation, and one of your guests said it, like it was an extraordinary moment that the government was forced into utilizing the Emergencies Act. Uh, you know, the current legis- you know laws in place just weren't, and the and the frankly the the services needed to try and clear out the blockade just weren't there, and so you know pulling, uh, re- you know, utilizing the Emergency Act in this critical moment was, I think, the right decision. And ultimately, we'll we'll set the tone. We'll we'll find out if this is truly necessary when the public inquiry comes out. But uh, I think they made the right decision, and and true to his word, he did it day by day and pulled back on it when it wasn't needed anymore. Okay. And Jason, last word to you. <clears throat> I was um, I, I thought you made a really good point earlier, Mohammed, about um, Windsor. Even though it was slightly different, I will say it is not lost on me that um, Windsor and Toronto were able to avoid this kind of, and, and Coots for that matter, even though Coots was a lot more, uh, and Alberta was a lot more, uh, you know, sort of confrontational, that we were able to clear these blockades in these other areas that were frankly um, even more, like the, the Windsor blockade was costing companies that I, I'm aware of millions of dollars per day, right? Like real shifts, real economic ruin. Um, you know, within three or four days, it was it was it was deleted without using the, the emergency back. I'm sad that it got to that in Ottawa, and I think it was an intelligence policing failure of epic proportions. I think somebody in Ottawa should be held accountable for that. Jason Leader, conservative strategist and president at Enterprise, and Muhammad Ali, liberal strategist and senior consultant at Crestview Strategy in Ottawa. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, the politics of removing license plate renewal fees. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Doug Ford announced a pre-election break for Ontario drivers this past week. The end of the annual $120 license plate renewal fee, including a refund of fees paid back to March of 2020. This move is costing taxpayers about $1.1 billion and apparently will happen without any service cutbacks. Some callers to fight back said this money could be spent in other areas, primarily health care. There are also questions around the enforcement of both unpaid parking tickets and car insurance, with license plate fees and stickers being eliminated. Frank Clayton is Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Urban Research and Land Development. Elliot Silverstein is Director of Government Relations for CAA Insurance. And Brad Bradford is Toronto City Councillor for Ward 19 Beaches, East York. They joined Libby on Wednesday to discuss issues around cancelling license plate stickers and annual fees. Well, obviously, we have lots of budget challenges at the City of Toronto. That's not new news. And we're working very closely with our partners at the province and the federal government uh, to help take care of some of those costs borne uh, for the pandemic response. But, you know, fundamentally, when it when it comes to issues that the city would be concerned with as it relates to the, the removal of the stickers, uh, you know, we just need to make sure that we have the, the leverage and the tools at our disposal to, to carry out parking enforcement from our bylaw officers and also with Toronto Police. I've had an opportunity to connect with both of them. Uh, and, and from my understanding is most of the enforcement uh, fines bylaw stuff is actually driven through the plate, not the sticker. So as long as we build a pro- program that accounts for, for our ability to recoup those fines uh, when they are outstanding... Uh, it shouldn't be a huge issue on the city's end from an enforcement well, perspective. Well, I can remember a few times when I went to get my sticker and uh, there was a parking ticket I didn't pay. And it was expensive, but it was like uh, no ticky, no that, sticky. Right. And that's always been one of the tools that we've had at our disposal. Uh, from my understanding and, and reading of the release, uh, that would now be driven through the uh, plate renewal process. And so we would still have the ability to collect those outstanding fines. Uh, you know, it's one less tool at our disposal, but I think it's a bigger fundamental question about, you know, were stickers the uh, the right tool for, for doing these things anyways? And uh, we'll have to figure that out, but I'm confident that these things can be addressed from the, the parking bylaw enforcement perspective. Elliot, uh, what about insurance? Motorists are still going to be required to renew their, their plates at different times. What we're seeing the change in is that they, the fee is not going to be collected and the sticker is not going to be issued. But you're still going to have to provide those pieces of evidence every year or two years. So there, there still will be the mechanics in there to, to, uh, to make sure that people are valid. So I think, you know, really this is a change that's been, that's been talked about over time. But, you know, as long as the, the process continues, that you still need to make sure that you're renewing on time and that uh, even without a fee, you don't just simply get to get your plate and drive away and never have to renew it again. Um, you know, again, th- there will be some checks and balances in there. Frank Clayton, does it make sense to do this? Uh, we've seen with a lot of things a, a move to user fees for all kinds of things. If you pl- If you pay for your sticker, it's drivers. People who don't drive don't pay. What do you think about this move? 
I, I think it's a crazy move. Uh, we, we have a tax that everybody's gotten used to. It produces over a billion dollars of revenue each year. The province has financial difficulties, and it's, it can't possibly uh, not reduce uh, expenditures at some point in time because they have to pay, you know, they, they, they're going to have a billion dollars a year less money to, 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 to spend. And so they're going to borrow, but ultimately they have to repay the money. So it's, 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 uh, I, I just don't understand it. It's not something people have been clamoring for. Well, I guess the government's done done the uh, uh, the tax uh, taking the fee off the, the license plate, so uh, we can't do much about it. Okay, Elliot Silverstein. The really important thing for for drivers to remember is that with the removal of the the cost and the sticker, it does not take away the the uh, the responsibility for them to make sure that their license and their their plates are up to date and make sure that they have it in place at all times. Brad Bradford, last word to you. Well, it's clearly a, uh, you know, it's a pitch towards folks who are driving cars. It's an option to make life a little bit more affordable. But I think at the end of the day, Ontario has big, big challenges when it comes to affordability uh, that far exceed the $120 license plate sticker. So we will see in June how people feel about it. Stay tuned to the other parties, see what they're bringing forward. Uh, but we will all have an opportunity to decide if this is the way we want to go forward. Brad Bradford is Toronto City Councillor for Ward 19 Beaches, East York. Elliot Silverstein is Director of Government Relations for CAA Insurance. And Frank Clayton is Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Urban Research and Land Development. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. For the second time this month, an investigation is being conducted at a Toronto middle school over an anti-Semitic incident in which students performed the Nazi salute in front of classmates. The latest incident occurred at Valley Park Middle School near Don Mills and Overly. A French teacher, who is the child of Holocaust survivors, had left her classroom, and when she returned, it's alleged several students surrounded her and gave her the Heil Hitler salute. This happened after a similar instance of anti-Semitism at Charles H. Best Middle School earlier this month, when students also apparently performed the Nazi salute. In a statement released this past Tuesday, TDSB Director of Education Colleen Russell Rollins issued an apology to the teacher at Valley Park Middle School and said the board is striving to attack incidents of hate through learning. Joining Fight Back with Reaction, Michael Levitt, President and CEO of Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies. I think the record speaks for itself, and we are seeing uh Incidents on a weekly basis, multiple incidents happening, uh, ranging from uh, graffiti, some really hateful graffiti, including swastikas and another language targeting Jews, uh, to actual uh, teachers or uh, students being met by uh, being met with uh, salutes and other language, including you know this teacher, this uh, this child of Holocaust survivors facing the Nazi salute and also a, a chant of Hail Hitler in the classroom, uh, we're saying that this has been happening now for months and months and months. There's a pattern to it that happens across the school board. It's time to move from a reactionary approach of going in and kind of 
patching these situations when they emerge. And we need to do something um, more comprehensive to make sure it's ignorance behind these acts. It's ignorance, um, you know, with every one of a lack of understanding of these symbols, of their impact, of, of what they mean in this situation, that the impact they've had on this teacher. We need to be doing a better job reaching those students and not just in the aftermath of an incident. Why is there an assumption that this is just out of ignorance? These these children don't know. Maybe they do know. Maybe they got it at home. We're, we're seeing, as you mentioned, um, a rise in anti-Semitism. We just have to look at the situation in Toronto uh, uh, last year, uh, where Jews were the most targeted victims of hate crime, uh, accounting, according to the Toronto Police Service, for about 34% of total incidents. So we know this is on the rise. In terms of where students are, again, picking up these, uh, the, the language, the symbols, uh, the, you know, where they're being exposed to it, we don't know. We can't say that definitive. We certainly know that social media platforms are a major, major source of memes and disinformation and Holocaust distortion and hatreds towards Jews and hatreds hatred towards everybody else as well. We know that's the reality in a lot of the places uh, that these students are going. But we don't have to look much further than our uh, than our regular than our you know our media sources to see in recent weeks discussions of swastikas or yellow stars appearing in the context of uh, anti-vax rallies. That's why we come back to this issue of education. But, you know, we, we talk about this was a grade eight class. We've seen this playing out in elementary schools as well. We've seen uh, incidents uh, of vandalism and other things uh, being present with even younger students. But I think we have to be having a bigger discussion on the nature of anti-Semitism. Yes, the historical anti-Semitism, but also what does it look like today? What is the Jewish community in Canada, in North America, globally, what are we facing? And I think those are important discussions that we are starting to turn our attention to in terms of providing, uh, especially for teachers, training programs and resources on understanding anti-Semitism kind of then and now. And it's something that we're working closely with um, the, uh, the Provincial Ministry of Education, which just provided funding to ourselves and to the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, to CJA, to be creating, in our case, it's a bilingual anti-Semitism classroom toolkit that will be a multimedia resource for parents and students, you said it, are they getting it at home? At home, it, would it be ignorance or would it be hate? We well, don't know the answer. Well, what that- we do know is we need to tackle it. Michael Levitt, president and CEO of Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Barry in Orangeville called about Doug Ford's move to eliminate license plate sticker fees. I'd just like to make a point that not everyone lives in urban areas that has access to public transit. And because of all of the financial burdens from the pandemic, I mean, I think it's an olive branch being handed out to people saying, we're going to, as a government, we're going to give you a little assistance to help reduce the increased expenses. You know, it's not a matter about people that have cars, just want cars to travel around and do nothing. People that live in rural areas need a car. Kate in Toronto says she's skeptical about the plan to get rid of these fees. If we're losing $1.1 billion with this paying for stickers, how are they paying for this uh, plate reading technology? Because technology, as you know, if you own any uh, devices, they're not cheap. So is it going to end up by costing us like $2.2 billion? And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Kathy in Niagara, who phoned about needing perspective when it comes to freedom, pointing to the concerns of anti-vaccine mandate protesters in Canada versus the people of Ukraine, who've had war waged on them by Vladimir Putin. I'm just thinking that with all that's, that's gone on in Canada... It's a joke when you see what's going on in Ukraine. We take democracy for granted. See how fast somebody can come in and take over? We've got to be careful. This is ridiculous, uh, uh, complaining about having to be shut down for uh, a couple of years. What about the people that had the blitz in, in England? You didn't see them running around crying that they were sick and tired of being bombed every night. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.